If one of the hardest things to figure out these days is what to watch next, first of all, congrats. Second of all, you should check out HBO Max. Discover something new to watch on HBO Max like Lovecraft Country, the new HBO series from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams that's got everyone buzzing. Plus, HBO Max is the only place you'll find new binge-worthy Max originals like Selena Gomez's new cooking show. You heard that right. Selena Gomez's Learning to Cook, from some of the world's best chefs, no less. Find your next favorite all in one place on HBO Max. Start streaming today. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Cellular. Let's talk about your cell phone carrier. When you think about your plan, does what you're getting feel fair? When it comes to staying connected, don't settle. When you switch to U.S. Cellular, not only do you upgrade to fair, you're also joining a reliable network you can trust to have your back. No hidden requirements, no activation fees. Now that's fair. Learn more at uscellular.com. Hi, I'm Kara Swisher, editor-at-large of Recode. You may know me as someone who knows everything about every type of building where horses are kept. In other words, I'm a varied, stable genius. Oh my God, Eric, that is the worst. But in my spare time, I'm just a reporter and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about power, change, and the people you need to know around tech and well beyond. We're part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today in the red chairs are... Two of my favorite reporters, Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker, two reporters from The Washington Post, where Carol is the national investigative reporter and Phil is the White House bureau chief. They're also the authors of a new book called A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. You have to have heard of it. This is like the hottest book right now in politics. Carol and Phil, welcome to Recode Decode. Thanks for having us, Carol. So we're going to talk about a lot of things, including like talking about your book, but things have moved swiftly since you wrote your book, oh, yeah. uh, which volume is amazing. Two. Volume six. It's going to be like, <laughs> remember when it was that like Winston Churchill series? Like this is going to go on. We'll be the Robert Caro <laughs> of our generation oh. writing. We'll get him out a little faster. Yeah, exactly. So let's talk a little bit about what you guys do. I want to go into um, – you know I worked at the Washington Post as a young thing, um, and I love, the pa- I love the paper. I have a lot of uh, affection for it. Talk about how you got to this book, both your backgrounds, just very briefly. Carol, why don't you start? I've been there since 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, Phil, maybe five years after me, uh, arrived. We love the paper. We feel like we stand in the shadow of giants in some way, right? With Bob Woodward, Carl mm-hmm. Bernstein, amazing, amazing authors and writers. But in terms of your question about this book, we started covering the Trump presidency the minute it began. Phil, even before me, because he was covering the campaign. Oh, so you were on the campaign itself, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Okay. And we— we felt like it was like bullets ricocheting past our faces every day. Mm-hmm. The, the first shocking thing that you would write in the morning would be replaced by the shocking thing in the afternoon, and you'd forget the next day what you wrote uh, two days ago that also stunned sure. and floored you. Right. So we wanted to hit the pause button and say, let's take a step back and mm-hmm. figure out what's going on behind the scenes and what should we make of this presidency? Is there any method to the madness that we're watching? Right. Now, Phil, this is an age-old Washington, especially Washington Post reporter thing, is to write these pieces about what went on in the room. We'll get to John Bolton in a second, um, in the room where it happened. This is sort of an age-old thing. So how did you think about this? Is in that way, or is that there, this is a very unique, I mean, a unique situation, a very unique situation? You know, we saw this as, as a different project than just uh, filling in the holes in the scenes right. and bringing together the color. We thought we are living history, and we needed to go back and really understand what happened and also what the consequences are for the country. And what we found in these interviews, we did more than 200 of them, by the mm-hmm. way with people who served Trump at his side in the Oval Office is that it's so much worse than we realized in real time. And there are people who refuse to tell their truth and what they experienced in real time to Mm -hmm. us for the paper, who went for the benefit of a history book, decided to share their stories. And uh, we feel like that's that's a unique contribution that this book makes because this is such a historic period and so much has gone Well, let's talk about that real time because often these books are done afterwards and what happened in the Iraq War or whatever. There's there's been so many of them. You know, it goes back to Boys on the Bus. There's all kinds of these in real time thing. And obviously the book about the McCain campaign, like there's so many of how did you approach this as your your daily news reporters while you're doing this, right? Is this correct? We were. We didn't we took some leave. We didn't get a lot of leave because, <laughs> you know, who wants to let go of any of their reporters during this 
unprecedented presidency. Mm-hmm. Um, we got a little bit of leave, and we took it. Uh, it was generous, in, in at least in this setting. And the way we approached it really was, okay, we could tell you everything about the presidency and everything that happened, but we really wanted to do a portrait of Donald Trump. The more and more we reported, the more people that broke their silence to tell us what happened in the room, we started to see Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. really feel what motivates him, what his North Star is, and what these interviewees told us, these sources told us over and over again is they were distraught not just by the impulsivity of the president, Mm -hmm. but also the way in which his interests, his self-image, burnishing it was the North Star. It Mm -hmm. was the decider in the room. It was the central reason he made his decisions. Right. It was about him. What about from your perspective? You know, the most important thing for Donald Trump from the moment he swore an oath to the Constitution and took office was the perpetuation of his own power. Mm -hmm. And the crises, the chaos that we see in the White House every day is all because he's scrambling to survive. He's scrambling to win the news cycle. He's scrambling to uh, escape from the Mueller investigation without any consequences, which he did. He's scrambling to escape from a six-month impeachment proceeding. Uh, acquitted, which which happened this week. And, uh, you know, it, 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 it's all about maintaining his grip and, and promoting his self-image. And he, he pushes all the buttons in, in the federal bureaucracy uh, to that end. And if you're a cabinet secretary or a, a senior official in the bureaucracy and you're not uh, working to perpetuate his power and burnish his image, then you're out. All right. Talk about this because there's been a lot of Trump books. There's been like at least a half a dozen, including from insiders, people who were, who were there, that one of his assistants did it. Um, all kinds of people have written these books, and they have shades of this. And obviously, Michael Wolff wrote the first one, um, which had shades of this. How did you want to approach it so we're different? Because I think for some reason, your book has really resonated. It's either because you're such good reporters or whatever, but a lot of people have sense of this is what's going on. How did you want to approach this? Again, we really wanted to tell history in real time. We were experiencing something we'd never had before. And we all remember that Donald Trump's um, MO, again, about burnishing his self-image, when we started to actually go back and reach out to these people who wouldn't talk to us in real time for certain stories, when Mm -hmm. we spoke to them, we realized, here's the material we've got. It's so much more dramatic and rich. Even scenes we reported, like how he handled the fake statement about mm-hmm. the Trump Tower meeting, mm-hmm. you know, how he manipulated the press to think that this meeting at the Trump Tower with a Russian um, lawyer was really just about the campaign. Adoption, we yeah. thought we knew all about that, but actually there was a ton more. There were right. people, the lawyers who were involved in that um, were losing their minds and screaming at each other like, here we are, stuck. It was that kind of, you don't know what you have until you do the reporting. And what we had when we did the reporting was a deeper understanding and much more detail about every moment we thought we knew. Well, a lot of the heart of this is pernicious lying, like pernicious content. Now, I have a small experience with with a bunch of Silicon Valley companies who just lie to you right out front. And I assume lies from the beginning and in certain people I cover. Um, This is sort of, it's unprecedented because I do think Politicians have lied forever. They have kind of or, or shaded. But this is a whole new level of stuff. So, so uh, Phil, talk a little bit about how did you get people? You're doing it when you're writing it, and you're writing it very quickly for the newspaper. And it's not the full story. It's never the full story because I know you make trades and you make little moments. Every reporter does that. You know, Carol's laughing, but it's true. Like you <laughs> we, say, we're not horse traders. No, come but, on, but, Kara. Yeah, come on. All rep- <laughs> I, I, I'm going to argue this point with you. I know exactly how it works. So, but but when you when you're doing it, how did you convince them to talk to you for this book? What was the that you owe it to history, or this liar is going to keep going, or what's the what was this the sell? It was really you owe it to history. Uh, we are serious reporters. We're doing yep. a serious book. This is going to be the comprehensive story. We're mm-hmm. not looking to do an account based on five or six key sources who are narrators. We want right. everyone's perspective. And if you don't come talk to us and tell us what you saw, tell us your truth, uh, you're going to be left out. Mm-hmm. And we're not going to have your side of the story. And that was a compelling argument for people. The, the pull for history was the most important for some of the senior most people, some of whom felt like they didn't want to tell these stories. They didn't write their own books. They feel obliged and duty-bound not mm-hmm. to speak out about a president while he's still in office. Uh, they feared retribution from the president, but they did so once they realized this was this complete history. And Carol and I found in the fact-checking process at the end of our of our book, we would go to sources who— 
did not agree to cooperate with the book to just verify, did you say this in this room? And all of a sudden, they become a new source and start right. uh, spilling a lot of other information that we didn't even know about. So it was a gradual uh, process with a lot of fruit at the end. And Kara, I want to add something about that because he said that beautifully, but I would add your question about lying. Mm -hmm. Many of these sources, which I found so striking, said, yeah, of course the president lies. He lies every day. Mm -hmm. But one thing they also revealed was this idea that his lies are about winning that moment. Mm -hmm. And sometimes he doesn't know he's lying. He's just saying to them, hey, when they confront him and say, hey, Mr. President, that's not how it happened. He says, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the big picture. Let's focus on the big picture. I'm a big right. picture guy. Right. But, but other times, he wanted to win the moment, and he didn't care about <laughs> three weeks later down the line when it came out. For example, again, the Trump Tower thing, he was warned. Explain that story for people. So, yeah. So, He's at the G7 mm-hmm. in Germany on the sidelines when a New York Times reporter is learning that there was this meeting, Don Jr., with a Russian lawyer during mm-hmm. the campaign at Trump Tower. It's the first time that there would have been a meeting between Russians and Trump's own family, um, including his son-in-law, Jared Kushner. As they're about to publish and they're seeking White House comment, the president decides he is going to tell the New York Times what his son is going to say. He's going to issue the statement, essentially, Mm -hmm. on his son's behalf. And he manipulates this story so that it's misleading. It's not about the campaign. It was about adoptions. And he he basically makes his son issue the statement. He's warned by his attorneys there are emails that are going to come out in Congress in the next several weeks to months that show that's BS. They don't put it that way. But as one person said to us, that's an eternity to Donald Trump. He mm-hmm. wants to win today. He doesn't right. care about the fall or mm-hmm. the late summer. He wants to win this moment. Right. So he just did it. He just, well, it's like, hello, he lied, essentially. Like, it, everything is, a, is an opportunity not to tell the truth or maybe tell the truth or whatever works in, in the second. And he doesn't care. And you know what? His supporters don't care either. Uh, the Washington Post fact checker has this running tally throughout mm-hmm. the presidency yes, of that. all the it's misstatements. 16, and lies. Over 16,000 yeah. now. It is an extraordinary number. And the pace is increasing, which means he's lying even more now than he did in the first year of the presidency. And yet the tens of millions of people who are part of MAGA Nation and go to his rallies and are going to vote for him in November could care less if he's telling why the truth or not. Why do you think that is? I know why it is. All part, they think why do you all think poli- it is? They think all politicians lie. So what's the difference? At least I, you know, he's a grifter, but he's my grifter, essentially. Yeah, and he's my champion, and mm-hmm. he's he's you know taken it to the to the man, so to speak, <laughs> in, the, in the Washington swamp, and they they view him as advancing their cause, mm-hmm. whether he lies or not. Think? Yeah, I mean, uh, he's an SOB, but he's my SOB. He's right. fighting for them, and and lots of times when we you know at the post talk to his supporters and say, but you know he actually tried to fight against uh, Obamacare that protected you if you had pre-existing conditions. You know, some people would argue his State of the Union address where he talks about that a lot the other night mm-hmm. was full of exaggerations and lies. Um, when you ask voters like, well, well, what do you think? They're like, yeah, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. He's he's such a great guy. He's really, he's finally saying what I believe, and we need someone to do that. All right. So getting back to the reporting of the book. So here you are getting all these people to talk to you. Were you surprised during the process? It feels, that's what feels like it's written like that. Like, what? Like, no, (laughs) actually, what? Like, yeah, I mean, there are so many moments that were surprising to Phil and to me. Give me an example. I mean, the, the, the president didn't know literally turned to his chief of staff on his first trip to Asia, stops off in Hawaii, is about to go visit the memorial, essentially, to mm-hmm. a, This was a big, got a big story. Yeah, at yeah, Pearl Harbor. And he turns to his chief of staff and says, John, what, what's this Pearl Harbor? What's this all about? He knows there was a, a, a battle at Pearl Harbor, but he doesn't know it's this incredibly historic moment that propels us into World War II. And... Um, that lack as as incurious. That, so yeah, some people say he's narrowly educated. Mm-hmm. Some of his uh, aides told us he's dangerously misinformed. But he also just doesn't take his briefings. So, mm-hmm. but here he is in that setting. Other things that shocked us. I mean, just how upset his senior aides were and how worried they are and how lucky they feel we haven't had a real crisis. Mm-hmm. They, I've heard that a lot from people inside mm-hmm. the White House. I don't cover the White House, but I'm surprised by how much. People who have been there say to me, and I don't even, like, I cover, I'm like, hi, I cover tech, but keep vomiting <laughs> up your information. Um, it is out of worry. If I'm not here, something bad's going to happen. 
Um, it's a really interesting thing, and yet nothing bad has – well, things bad have happened. Like today alone, there were like three to their drilling in all the state in the national parks. But there's not been a 9-11 right, exactly. or, or a major sort right. of world-altering event that he mm-hmm. has to respond to and, and deal with. And it's one of the reasons why John Kelly stayed in that job, mm-hmm. the most miserable job in any presidency, but especially this one to be yeah. the chief of staff at the yeah. White House. Yeah. And he stayed for so long because he saw himself as protecting – the country from a president whose decisions were are, are made rashly and, and impulsively. So that's kind of an issue with the people that were inside because the people who talked to you, on some levels, I've had discussions with many of these people, and I'm like, well, then say something. Like, if you see something, say something. And now they talk to you guys. But again, it doesn't have the same if it's on the record. Like, John Kelly's a good example. McMaster's another good example. People who have issues who are quietly leaking the John Bolton, and we'll get to him in the next section, quietly leaking these things out, but it's in that sneaky Washington way that doesn't have any effect anymore. Well, we're not identifying sources. Yeah. I just want to stress that. Yeah. And, but the people who did speak to us, I mean, they revealed a lot about their motivations. I think mm-hmm. they were very honest with us about why. One was this issue of history that Phil described. Right. Look, you're going to get it. You're going to get it right. So I want to be part of you getting it right. Number right. two, the reason they want to be anonymous, they see the president's power to come after anyone who speaks truth to him. They see his ability to humiliate and tarnish a reputation, to ruin someone's resume forever. There are people (laughs) who went to work for this president who cannot get a job because they went to work for him. (laughs) So imagine if they went to work for him and he's coming after them. Who is going to hire you? There's a lot of anxiety about that. I, I also found it interesting there are people that are much lower down the chain who who agreed to speak to us um, anonymously and would normally run like crazy from reporters. Mm-hmm. It's not their not their thing. But in national security and intelligence worlds, they're agreeing to talk to us because it's so upsetting. Right, because they don't – because they have these jobs that are – that they do – you know, that they have a lot of regard for, that they think are, is important to keep having kept the peace over the years. And this is a system that tends to work despite public its servants and yeah. patriots. Yeah. So when you are doing this, when you're writing this book, what was your dealings with the Trump administration on this, going back to them? Well, we— There's a lot of loaded things. There was the, the Don't Know Pearl Harbor. There, was a, there were like six or seven things that are just appalling. And you're talking specifically about right. the representatives mm-hmm. of the president. Yeah. Well, you know, we wanted to interview the president himself right. about all of this. He initially agreed to do an interview, actually. he mm-hmm. I spoke to him on the phone, and he said, come on in. You guys are serious reporters. It's going to be a serious book. I want a book like this done. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to you. And right. he uh, pulled back that agreement because the hostility between him and the Washington Post— and the, the press corps writ large had gotten so extreme. Right. So in the final months of our reporting, we knew we probably weren't going to interview the president, but we wanted to get his perspective on things. We wanted to fact check mm-hmm. everything in the book involving him. We tried to do that with the White House. We gave them more than a month to get back to us with substantive answers to the episodes that we recounted. And his spokespeople in the White House were unable to provide uh, any substantive answers. Why? Uh, we're not sure. But the, the truth is they they did not engage the way a, a normal functioning mm-hmm. a press operation would Lovely engage. Lovely you thought they would. I can see. <laughs> I know that meeting. Oh, fuck them. Well, know, we want to give, we, we wanna give them— That's what they said. A, we, <laughs> We wanted to give them a good faith chance to do this. And, but right. we did verify everything in the book with everybody else. Mm-hmm. And if somebody's in the book, they had a chance to uh, to corroborate or to correct or to deny. contest or deny mm-hmm. uh, the quotes that are in there and the other scenes that are in there. All right. So when you were doing this, and you call, explain why you called it a very stable genius. You know, a lot of people take issue with this, especially— I love it. The, the president hates Saucy. it. We have heard the Saucy. president really doesn't like it. Oh, he started like it. it. Well, exactly. He and started that, it. His own word. You can go fish. Whatever. Phil, you don't have to say it. But. Phil and I felt strongly like, let's use his own words. We came to this title saying— Was it going to be but anyway? Well, well I mean, it also <laughs> could be great, my great unmatched wisdom, right? right. That was no, one of the other— No, I think stable genius is probably— we um we felt it was important if we're doing a portrait of the man. Mm-hmm. Lots of people write about this guy. How many thousands of people write about Donald Trump? Whether it's in a book or in a newspaper reporting, every day people are writing about Donald Trump. But if we're going to do a portrait of him, let's use his description of himself. We wanted to stress test this definition with the people who know him best, who mm-hmm. stand at his shoulder, advise him on the decisions of war, peace, domestic prosperity, uh, you know, the the border. And they didn't, in large measure, believe he was stable, mm-hmm. and they did not, in large measure, believe he was a genius. However, you know, 
in stress testing it and holding that mirror up mm-hmm. to Donald Trump, we did find some people and some characteristics that show he is a genius in some ways. He's well, a, he's a hot mess. He's a hot mess. I would call some, him a hot mess. He's also a master marketer. Mm-hmm. Look at look at his success. This is a man as as we've described who triumphed over a criminal investigation that found substantial evidence. He obstructed mm-hmm. a criminal probe. Yeah. Most people go to jail for that. Yeah. He triumphed over a impeachment process rapidly uncovering facts that showed he tried to engage a foreign power in investigating an American citizen. Uh, he triumphed and is, has been acquitted, and he and his supporters love him. Well, except you look at his history, that's what he's done his whole history. This has, been a, this has been a history of a person who gets out of scrapes, either because he was a rich kid or he's just brazen. I his, think brazenness. His, his is, casinos, they all went right. b- bottom up, but, but he left uh, with all of his pockets full and all of his partners were in debt. And he, his Dehanna's debt's unpaid. How many bankruptcies? Yeah, but it works not to pay people. It works. I see that's the issue. Is like everyone's like, I can't believe it. One of the things I'm fascinated by. I don't know if you know this about me, but I've watched every episode of The Apprentice, so I get this Ooh. whole thing. He's not stupid. Like everyone's like he's stupid. I'm like, no, he's not. Like, no, no, it's something every else. Every episode. Right? Every episode. <laughs> I and I know how this is going to end. We got to do another conversation not about well. that. For him. The ratings were down. That's what yeah, happened in The yeah. Apprentice. The stories get ever shittier, and the narratives suck, and then you get tired of them. That's oh, what happens. Just so you know. Maybe the next epilogue. Epilogue. He's still going to be rich <laughs> as hell and be just fine, you know, and he'll be, he'll be laughing all the way to the bank. But when we get back, we're going to talk about what it's like to work at the Washington Post, where we're going to go from here with your book, because like 900 things have happened since your book. Your book is now outdated <laughs> in case you're interested. And how you deal with this onslaught of constant um, twitchiness. Um, we'll talk about Twitter and a bunch of other things when we get back. We're here with Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker from the Washington Post. Their new book is called A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of a America. We're going to take a quick break now. We'll be back after this. Searching for what to stream next? HBO Max is where all of HBO meets the greatest collection of movies, shows, and Max originals for everyone in the family. Discover something fresh to watch with new HBO series like Lovecraft Country from Jordan Peele, Misha Green, and J.J. Abrams, or The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant. You can also jump into a new Max original like Selena Gomez's new cooking show, Selena and Chef, or The Flight Attendant, a dark new comedic thriller starring Kaylee Cuoco. Ridley Scott's even producing a new series called Raised by Wolves. Whether you want to rewatch classic favorites or finally get into that show your friends have recommended a thousand times, HBO Max has something for everyone. Start streaming today and find your next favorite. Download the app or visit hbomax.com to start your free trial. If you're an early adopter, you get that your devices and your connections need to be fast and help make your life better. But you might be forgetting one thing. Tech should be fair, too. Fairness isn't a new idea, but it is to wireless. That's where U.S. Cellular comes in. At U.S. Cellular, people come first. And that means a fast, reliable connection with no hidden requirements and no activation fees. They'll even pay you back for unused data. When you upgrade to U.S. Cellular, you upgrade to FAIR. Learn more at uscellular.com. We're here with Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker from The Washington Post. Their book is called A Very Stable Genius, which cracks me up. So talk a little bit about working at The Washington Post right now, this enemy of the people, which is a little bit of a game and not a game that's going on. What's that like? I work there. Everybody, not everybody, Nixon did not like the Washington Post. I was not there during that period. But this is something different. <laughs> you're a lot this younger. A, yeah, and you're owned by Jeff Bezos, who is constantly attacked by the president. I assume you don't know him. I do. But talk about what it's like covering the White House with this. You have all this sort of, you have the Bezos thing. You've got the Post being very aggressive, a lot more uh, stability in terms of the business of the Post, being owned by the world's richest man. Talk a little bit about this. Like, what's it like covering the White House? Now, did you cover the previous White House? You didn't. I, I did. did. I covered the Obama White House right. as well uh, for the Washington Post. It's very different covering the Trump White House for yeah. the Washington Post. During the Trump campaign, uh, Washington Post reporters were were kicked off uh, the campaign. We were not mm-hmm. able to have, to have credentials to cover his rallies. Right. So hostility existed before he even became president. Uh, but it's a really challenging time. And the most important thing we have is a, is a really strong leader in Marty Barron who sets a tone for all of us. And mm-hmm. he says, 
that we should think of covering the Trump administration not as being at war, but being at work. We're doing our jobs. We're trying to get answers to our questions. We're trying to shine a light where there's darkness. You may have heard of our slogan, Mm -hmm. Uh, democracy dies in the darkness, but it's not a joke. I mean, it's really uh, serious work and it can get really ugly. Uh, The president has called uh, Carol, uh, what did he call you? A low life. life. Who's the stone cold loser? We both are stone cold cold losers. losers. Carol's a low life. I'm a nasty nasty lightweight. lightweight. Nasty lightweight. Uh, and it's ugly. We get threats. We have had to increase security for our reporters at the Post. Um, we've had to be careful about where we go in public and, and what we do. But mm-hmm. we've be- become so much more committed to the work. And I think everyone we work with at the White House team, Ashley Parker, Josh Dossie, lots of tremendous mm-hmm. reporters, uh, this just motivates us to, to dig deeper and, and really hold the people in power accountable. And what about for you? You were saying before we started that you're a dirt digger. You just, you're just an investigative reporter. What yeah, is that I like? Mean, I, right I, now it's like out on—it's not even—you don't even have to investigate. It's literally on the— ground. Like, look, it's another dead body. Oh, wow, look at that. You know, I'm on this investigative team, and it is a fast-moving investigative team. You, you usually spend several weeks or months, really, digging into a subject and trying to reveal what's behind the curtain. And in the Trump presidency, it, it's a much more challenging job because mm-hmm. you're revealing what's behind the curtain every 45 minutes, it feels right. like. It's a, um, it's, well, they're not hiding it. Well, there's that. There's yeah. also the thing. Oh, they're that, hiding there, something. There's something else that the president does, which it makes our job slightly. I mean, it's challenging, but it makes it easier. He encourages factionalization inside his White House, mm-hmm. and so the factions that are fighting with each other, whether it's the Javanka side or the right. Bannon side or the, you know, the Don McGahn White House Counsel now Pat Cipollone, whatever those variable factions are. Oh no, it's the Sopranos it, he, in there. Yeah, totally. And, it is. It's like, and, and again, I'm not, na- I'm not naming sources. Right. I'm just saying those factions are all, and their aides and their deputies, they're all styling like, let me tell you how it really is. And mm-hmm. um, sometimes they review, of course, we're going to check the facts and vet them and make sure we're not being spun. But mm-hmm. sometimes their facts are pretty darn good mm-hmm. and it hurts the, their rival. And you know what's funny is in the book, we see how President Trump is almost clapping on the sidelines when. Everyone is in a Shakespearean way well, fighting chaos. fighting for his affection and admiration. Right. right. That amazing cabinet meeting where, you know, people are fawning over oh, and falling over themselves to try to tell him he is the most stable genius they've ever met. Mm-hmm. And when you're covering, what is how is that different? Besides being the unsafety, you have relationships with these people, though. Even though they're being very angry, the press, I am certain they're calling you all the time and they're interacting. Because I had this at Uber and any any number of companies I covered, they were like, Kara's the worst, and then get on the phone, like, kind of thing. Like, how do you think I got and my you know information? What? And it's not just the staff who are that way. Uh, mm-hmm. The president himself is that way. He'll attack us personally, and he'll attack the Washington Post. And he'll Post. call you. And then I'm I, on Air Force One in the pool one day, and he comes back to tease me right. about my chocolate cake and, and mm-hmm. try to take the cake, cake off my plate, which he did oh, he on a no flight from California. Fight with him. He, he loves interacting with reporters. He holds grudges, reporters. but doesn't. He, he doesn't. loves reporters. Ask Maggie Haberman. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's a really tough reporter I've on never him, talked to her. But he's obsessed with her yeah. and talks to her all the time. Yeah, but he says he never does. And he seeks her approval and admiration, yeah, yeah. and he does with the other reporters as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a bit of a, a hypocrisy there oh, yeah. in how and he treats he, the press. He canceled his Washington Post subscription, except he held up the Washington Post today when yeah. it said acquitted. Right. That's really thought That was funny. I didn't realize it was the Post. <laughs> ah, you, you were playing to him by putting it like that. So what is it like then now to report? Because it, you're sort of—one of the things—I I, I literally can't abhor the Trump administration, but— one of the things is it does pull the curtain back on this ridiculous system because so many other White Houses have been so um, organized and righteous, but there's a lot of stuff that was going on that was bad. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? Just bad. And they now they can be, like, righteous about it and everything else. But th- some of the things that he points out, and I can't believe I'm coming, is, like, you know, you're, this is why it's appealing to people because everybody knows, like, we get into a war that maybe we shouldn't have gotten into. This, these Defense Department people then move into the defense uh, industry. There's all Washington is operated in a certain way. Um, and then when you get someone who's just corrupt by nature coming in and just being corrupt, it's sort of – it's not refreshing. It's just – it's just like, okay, it's like this whole system sucks. What, what you is, know, I, I, I think when you're talking, I was thinking about the examples of, 
you know, we all think a president should not steer a contract mm-hmm. right. to a particular vendor. And yet in this administration, there's some evidence that With he tried to steer this wall contract to mm-hmm. a company. And he was out in open tweeting about how great they were. It wasn't like some sort of cover of darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example is that that sort of bizarre event where a Montana tiny whitefish company ends up being in charge of the electrical rebuild, regrid of Puerto Rico after mm-hmm. the hurricane. It, it happens to be in the area of a cabinet member in the, in his mm-hmm. zone and a friend of his. It just sort of amazing the way in which this kind of um, corrupting mm-hmm. of what should be a fair system that is the best buy and the best deal for taxpayers doesn't really work that way. Right. It happens all the time. And then when you're actually covering it, how w- w- you've written this book. It's a book that can't add more stuff to it. It's You know, you can add more to a digital copy, presumably. But what does a, writing a book like this mean anymore? Because since I want to talk about some things that are happening now, but since you wrote the book— there's been like nine more chapters written. Like, how do you maybe nineteen? Nineteen. Like, what, talk yeah. about that. Like, what do you? What, how do you? How are you approaching this book? Well, there's not a second book in the works at the moment. I think we would both collapse if we tried to <laughs> yeah. do that right now. Um, but you know, we we see this this book, a very stable genius, as the the story of this time period, and mm-hmm. it ends right at the moment when the impeachment inquiry begins, mm-hmm. and. You know, it's not going. It doesn't include the things that have happened in the last couple of months by nature of the publishing schedule. Mm-hmm. But it is such a template for what we've been witnessing just the last few weeks in the Senate trial. All of the acti- the actions and behavior and conduct that we've seen from the president, uh, it fits a pattern. Fits the pattern. So talk about through, those patterns. The first three years. Talk about the patterns because you have them in this book. And one of the thi- one of the patterns I notice all the time with people um, today it was about around around the the not letting New York people get through clear or whatever. The, you know, I have one of those um, things. Um, and and everyone was like, I can't believe this. And I finally was like, why can't you believe it? It happens all the time. Every day he does something appalling and you can't believe it because last week he did this. Last. Talk about the patterns that are here that are now what's happening now. And then we'll talk about where it's going. But right now, if you were writing the book, what areas would you focus on? Well, I think one of the most important ones is it, we've it, we've hit on a little bit and then I'll move on, but it's that perpetuation of his power, the mm-hmm. burnishing of his mm-hmm. image. That's number one every yeah, day when he wakes example. up. Right. The other two is the vindictiveness. Like I will punish or I will go after those who question or threaten or counsel. You know, initially, Kara, at the beginning, we all saw this, but we didn't realize the depth to which it was true, and we learned it in our reporting, there were all these senior advisors who came in with hopes, high hopes, that Mm -hmm. they were going to guide this apprentice, this novice, and help achieve a conservative agenda, Mm -hmm. surely, but also advise and and those guardrails are gone. Mm-hmm. So each time he wins, each time he jumps a hurdle, he gets bolder and bolder right. and bolder still. Mm-hmm. Um, another important sort of theme in this is the attack dog feature of the president, which is if – and, and I, I guess I've referenced this mm-hmm. already, but this attack dog of like – I will be a fighter for you, mm-hmm. and everyone you don't like, I will go after them. Right. Um, another way in which, forgive me, but this goes to a question you asked Phil a minute ago about the the, the way our book foreshadows the future. Mm-hmm. Yesterday, when Mitt Romney started talking about being judged by history, wanting his children and his grandchildren mm-hmm. to be able to see that he'd made this decision, he is literally almost the person we're talking about in our epilogue, a person who, Mr. Hogan, who in Nixon's Watergate investigation realizes what the president has done and decides this is the one way in which I will be judged by history, how I decide about President Nixon's behavior. And I am going to be the Republican who says no. Mm-hmm. And that's what Mitt Romney did as well. All right, talk about that a little bit, because he went immediately went after him. And he said that. And in fact, Mitt Romney said it in his speech. He goes, if you think I want these consequences, you've got to be crazy. I know exactly what ugliness is coming at me. Um, but I have, I have, I'm speaking to a higher power, both history and religion, like, and, and his God. And so I think that was fascinating. But he did talk about it very, rather explicitly about that. It's coming. He did. And we should keep in mind that Trump has gone after Romney in really ugly ways before. Says he walks like a penguin, mm-hmm. a total loser for losing the 2012 election. This could be a new level of vitriol. Donald Trump Jr. Uh, tweeted 
conceded that Romney should be expelled from the right, Republican Party, which is a ridiculous statement because it's mook. not it's not up to any presidential. He's a mook. You don't, you can't say it, but that <laughs> man's a mook. We can't say it. Yeah. But it is not his job to mook, decide who's whatever. in the Republican Party. But you know, Trump at the National Prayer Breakfast uh, made an attack on on Romney that was just really jarring. He, he and su- Pelosi who was sitting right there. He did, and he questioned Romney's faith. And then later in the day, in the East Room of the White House, he said Romney uses his religion as a crutch, a political crutch. Romney is one of never the most faithful men in politics. And never talks about it. Then. A former leader I, this of this is the Mormon first time church. I've heard him yeah. talk about his religion. He was afraid to talk about it because yeah. he had political consequences at the time he being was running, a Mormon, right, yeah. being a Mormon with Republican evangelicals. Uh, but he's a man of faith, and that, that guided this decision. And I, I think Romney would probably argue Trump is not a man of faith no. by the way Romney is. So. Yeah, it kind of makes the hair go up on the back of your neck to think that somebody could— um, Republican, Democrat, Independent, they know who Romney is. It, yeah. You can't say that faith isn't—that he isn't genuine in that in that claim. So what's happening behind the scenes with others? Because one, I think the, the parts that is interesting, because you did get a lot of people to talk to you. You have 200 people talking to you. These are the enablers who do not talk publicly, one, or just let it go and move along. And I think it's—one of Donald Trump's strengths is understanding that people break apart really quickly if you break them apart. Like, if they group together, it would be a different situation. Um, but, you know, look what happened with the uh, with uh, Me Too. Finally, when everyone talked together, they were able to talk together. But nobody does that here. It's it's like they group together in sort of fear and loathing. And you guys have written about it. I think Josh Dossie wrote a piece about this. Why is that happening? What is it just, I just want to be, you know, Senator Lindsey Graham? Or what is it? I think there's a really simple answer for that, which is Trump's approval rating among Republican voters. All the other Republican elected officials live in fear of the 80 to 90 percent of Republican voters who strongly approve of this president's performance in office. And they're afraid that Trump is going to turn his venom on them and turn these supporters on them. And then they're going to become a former, former Senator Bob Corker, former Senator Jeff Flake. Those guys don't are not in office anymore and probably could not win elections in their home states mm-hmm. because they got crosswise with this president. And that's why so many of these senators voted to acquit President Trump, even though they know that the evidence was not even in dispute, even mm-hmm. though some of them said publicly what the president did was wrong. Yeah, several They still did. acquitted him. That was an interesting little tango. Yeah. Was like, so <laughs> he did everything he did was wrong, but I'm going to vote to acquit him. It was exactly. fascinating. It was like, <laughs> you've got to be kidding me. The Washington me. two-step. Two-step, right, exactly. But wh- what do you think the enabling comes from? What, if this is unprecedented. There was enabling under Ronald Reagan. You've seen it everywhere. You look. But they broke from uh, Nixon eventually. They broke—people have not—this level of enabling I've never seen. It's almost cult-like. It can't be that much fear. He's really—of course, he can switch the light on or off on whether or not you're going to get your next term. Mm-hmm. I think that Phil's exactly right. And also, I mean, again, the the venom he can unleash uh, on Twitter against any member who comes at him. Think of all the cute little nicknames he's gotten for people, Shifty mm-hmm. Shift, and he comments on people's weight. I mean, it's pretty vicious um, a, whenever you are somebody who's on the other side. Mm-hmm. I, I will say there have been a couple profiles uh, encourage, if if people view it this way, mm-hmm. uh, of people who've stood up to the president, um, sometimes in private and mm-hmm. sometimes in public. In private, uh, you know, he's not a perfect hero. There are no perfect heroes in this book. But Rex Tillerson stood mm-hmm. up and said, you're wrong, Mr. President, when he right. came that was at— a, that was Explain that scene, what happened. So in July 2017, um, which is very early and seems like ancient history now, but we learned a lot new about it, uh, President Trump is brought to the tank, a sort of sacred space in the Pentagon where decisions of war are made. And the Joint Chiefs, uh, the, the Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, uh, General Mattis, Secretary of Defense, and Gary Cohn, National economic advisor, want to have kind of like a tutelage, if you will, um, without making him feel patronized. They want to explain to the president, like, why we have bases where we have them, yeah. why troops are forward He was a primer on U.S. Power. Yeah, like they're always fighting him with him about these things, and they're thinking to themselves, we just need a shared basic understanding, shared language, so he understands why we all can sleep safe and near and dear at night. Mm-hmm. These things keep America safe. And um, unfortunately, the schoolhouse rock goes terribly awry. Because <laughs> as the president is hearing these descriptions, I'm just a bail on Capitol Hill. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I loved it too. Um, the president just bellowing at them, and, ca- and as as others have reported, um, he's telling them that they're. Um, 
you know, this Afghanistan's a loser war, they're losers. But what we didn't know is he started to call them dopes and babies. Mm -hmm. A woman started to cry in the room. People start shuffling their papers. They're so, they want to will themselves out of this room. Jim Mattis has his head bowed. He's, he's speechless. No one's talking. Vice President Pence is a is described as a wax figure. Well, he is a wax figure. Of those, you know, I don't know are, if you know that, but he was created in Silicon Valley, part of Westworld. <laughs> oh it's boy. a character oh that boy. didn't work out. Keep going. And uh, glad to are, clarify he, that for everybody. Somebody said, you know, I learned everything I needed to learn about the vice president that mm-hmm. day. He has a son in the military, and and he was willing to listen to this. And finally, after calling them dopes and babies, the president says. The worst curse word he can say, I wouldn't go to war with you people. And Rex Tillerson uh, can't take it anymore, according to the people in the room. He's looking at Mattis, waiting for Mattis to bark back. Mattis won't do it. Mm -hmm. Tillerson stands up and says, that's wrong, Mr. President. You're wrong. People don't put on a uniform to make a buck. We're not trying to make money by charging the Koreans for, you know, our base there. Mm -hmm. This is about safety for America. This was a jarring scene. So jarring and so emotionally scarring for people and you know, so why didn't anyone say anything? May I ask? the The impression that that many had was that as flag officers, nobody could speak back to their commander in chief, mm-hmm. and Tillerson didn't have that kind of responsibility. He, mm-hmm. didn't ha- he wasn't in that chain of command. What about the others? Why Why is there not the talk back, the clap back? The fear, uh, you know, it, it's still the, the fear. It's still the fear. Uh, you know, it's certainly the the uniform members, as Carol was saying felt like duty-bound to follow the chain of command. But mm-hmm. there were all sorts of civilians in the room, including, right. for example, Mattis, who in that role was a civilian defense secretary, even though he's a former Marine mm-hmm. general, uh, who wouldn't confront the president. You know, they feel like he's been elected by the American people. Uh, he's rightfully holding this office, even though we all know he lost to Hillary Clinton in a popular vote by 3 million votes. But uh, he won the Electoral College. He's he's in that office for a reason, and they feel like they need to honor him as long as it's within the bounds of the law. And why is that? You have to, because it's the office. That's the excuse they use. It's the office. They use the excuse that it's the office, and, you know, they, they I think, purposefully sometimes will be blind to other factors. Other factors meaning? All the all the ways that Trump himself uh, violates these norms or mm-hmm. uh, desecrates the office in any number of of ways on any on any given day. There's another scene like this in the book too, though I'm thinking about it as Phil's talking, is because he he's making me remember it. Kirsten Nielsen is getting reamed out by the mm-hmm. president in a cabinet meeting, screamed at by him, dressed down. Again, Pence does almost nothing. Jared Kushner, as she's getting yelled at because he wants to, he's talking about shutting down the border, literally closing it. And yeah. she's like, Mr. President, you know, under our laws, that's not legal. People are allowed to cross the border, ask for asylum, and then we will decide whether or not they properly can stay. And he's like, well, what do you think, Jeff? And he's mad. And Jeff Sessions says, yeah, I think you're right, Mr. President. I think we should shut down the border. That that's right. And I'm thinking, as we're learning the details of this conversation, this is the the highest officer of law enforcement in our country, the attorney mm-hmm. general, and he's saying, sure, we can do this illegal thing. Jared Kushner in this scene takes his fingers across his neck to Kirsten as if to say, quit it. Stop talking. This is not a winner. Mm-hmm. She's trying to explain the law to the president and uh-huh. no, nobody's giving her cover. Yeah. Yeah. But then she's been, I mean, she, by doing that, she became a much reviled figure, this stuff. She, you know, she, gets all, all, she gets to hold a bag of crap that he handed her. Totally. We all know what an abusive manager Donald Trump can be, but mm-hmm. we learned in this reporting for the book that he's, he's even more abusive than we imagined, and it comes out with Kirsten Nielsen. Right. Uh, he would call her late at night after watching a Lou Dobbs episode oh, on Fox Dobbs, Business Channel to tell her, Lou's got this great idea for immigration. I want it done. Of course, Lou's ideas are not always legal and usually don't work. And uh, Anyhow, so she would sort of entertain that request from the president. He would call again at 5 in the morning to wake her up on purpose and ask why it hadn't gotten done. And she'd have to tell him, you know, sir, the, the staff at the department are sleeping. Uh, <laughs> we can't get that done. By the way, it's not legal. <laughs> He would attack her for her looks. He would say mm-hmm. she's too short at, what is yeah. she, 5'2", five 5'4"? Five right, right, right. Too short to be an effective Homeland Security secretary. She mm-hmm. just didn't have the look that he wanted for somebody securing the border. Uh, well, let, we're going to talk about when we get back why this works because it's it's really fascinating that it does. And, and also how he uses Twitter. And we'll get a little yeah. bit into tech because I think this is part of what's happening. And this is 
uh, it's a really interesting phenomenon. You know, he really is the, the troll-in-chief, which is kind of an interesting thing. When we get back, we're going to be talking with Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker from The Washington Post. Their new book is called A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. And you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, we're back with Carol Lennig and Phil Rucker, the authors of A Very Stable Genius, Donald J. Trump's Testing of America. Uh, it's a long test. It's been going on a long time. Talk about the use of Twitter, because you're talking about attacking people personally. The personal stuff, I know it hurts people, but, like, that's what he does. Like, who cares? Do you, did you care when you were calling losers? Were you like, oh, no, he called me a loser? When he called us stone-cold losers, I thought, well, we've really arrived. Yeah. And maybe we moved up from nasty, lightweight, and low life. Yes. The truth is, though, we don't want to be attacked by the president. We don't want to be a part of this story. I mean, we don't get our feelings hurt. We've got thick skin. We're grown-ups. We're doing our jobs. Uh, we pick up the next day and keep going. But we'd rather not be in the middle of the fray with yeah, him. Yeah, but you're going to be. Like, what, to, we to will me, be. It's inevitable. To, it's really interesting. But it's not preferable. Right. Of course it's not Agreed. preferable. But he's going to do it. Like, And what's the difference? No one's going to remember the last one he did. Like, At this point, it's kind of losing its like steam in terms of— like which, What I find interesting is someone like Jeff Bezos, and he did get— heard on this Defense Department thing, and we'll see how that turns out because Jeff is suing, and Jeff is not a shrinking violet in dealing with people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can tell you, Trump's got his hands full with a guy like that, you know, having watched his career. But when you think about the pushing back of it, when you have these names happening all the time, when he uses Twitter in this way, how do you think it's changed political discourse? Because everybody's on Twitter now. You have Marco Rubio, who's a, who's a shitty Twitter person, by the way. He's terrible at it. And you, he is. I'm sorry. He just is. He's so bad. It's so, like, painful. Um, Lindsey Graham's real bad. But some of them are good. Some of, the, some of the Republicans are quite good at it. And Trump is great at it, even though he's awful. He's great at it. Talk about this phenomenon in politics now, because now all the news is seen. The governing is done through there. The, around, um, there was a couple of times he issued executive orders on yeah. Twitter. Yeah, yeah. What or, is that? Or, or for example, when he announces that John Kelly is his new chief of staff, mm-hmm. while John Kelly is in the air and hasn't been notified, right. Or rather, hasn't told the president affirmatively, "Okay, I'll take the job." That's right. another thing we learned in the book. Right. He uses Twitter as a weapon, as a marketing tool, and and as a as a hiring, uh, almost like command performance hiring, I remember this one scene we were reported out that had to do with Chris Christie. You know, he, he was warned by his wife, you better get in there and talk to him. He might announce on Twitter that he hired you without you mm-hmm. agreeing, which mm-hmm. is indeed what happened uh, ultimately to John Kelly. I, I, I think one thing that's what we keep hearing from people, whether they're Republican or Democrat that we've interviewed, experts in presidencies, historians— um, this is lowering the bar of what a president um, should and could do. When you have this kind of nasty language, what are we teaching um, children? What are we teaching uh, other politicians or budding politicians mm-hmm. about the way in which we have a civil discourse? Mm-hmm. Most presidents haven't gone into this sort of ad hominem uh, way of speaking to their rivals in this way. Another thing that's so really— So you think it has that? Is going I, to have that. I think not everyone can do this. I think there's very few politicians that actually can do this well. I don't think it will because I think— I mean, we'll see. People will try. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons why Trump can do it so well is he has no shame. Right. Uh, He's the only person in politics who has no shame uh, and is not afraid of what people are going to think of what he says or does. He'll just do it again the next day. And so he's able to tweet his thoughts in that moment without the calculations that other political figures do. I covered the Mitt Romney campaign mm-hmm. in 2012, and for Mitt Romney to issue a tweet on that campaign, it had to be reviewed by, like, yeah. two dozen communication yeah. staffers Hillary at the headquarters. Hillary Clinton was like that until recently. Now, she's good. She's also She's good. better now. Oh, yeah. she's good. Yeah. She's got a nice flair for it every now and then. Kamala Harris is good. There's mm-hmm. a couple people who are quite good, and you can tell it's them. You know? Well, let's talk about the ways it hasn't worked out mm-hmm. so well. I mean, for example— 
you said Romney has it reviewed by multiple people. Mm-hmm. Well, Trump doesn't, obviously, and people want to take people who work for him want to take that phone away from him. Mm-hmm. One morning in January 2018, he's sitting in the residence in the executive time mm-hmm. and uh, explain executive time. It's pretty much all his days watching it, TV. Yeah, a lot of hours right. in the morning. Hate watching TV and love mm-hmm. watching other other shows. Mm-hmm. Um, and talk, calling friends and saying, "Oh my God, Lou, I, that's really interesting." Or Sean, you know, Hannity, interesting. Blah blah blah. Well, one day he's literally governing by tweet because Judge Napolitano, a fixture on Fox and Friends, is uh, talking about the, the reauthorization yeah. of a Foreign Surveillance Act, a piece of that act that is important to catch terrorists plotting abroad. Mm-hmm. It was um, a piece of the law that needs reauthorization from Congress, and the White House was beha- behind that reauthorization, the president and his whole team. But when the president saw Judge Napolitano talking about it and saying, I don't know why the president would support a law that may have been used to wiretap him and mm-hmm. survey his, surveil his campaign, the president is on fire, and he tweets his concern about this law. Maybe we shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. The two things have nothing to do with each other. And, right. and that starts a, a uh, several hours of chaos again at the White House where John Kelly, chief of staff, has to bring in the intel chiefs and has to have Wade, um, Wayne, uh, forgive me, Tom Bossert issue a corrective tweet because they actually want this law and it has nothing to do with the warrants that are used to surveil people in America. So what's that like covering? Covering it, Phil, when you have this happening, when things come out that you, you know, you, I'm assuming like any other reporter, you have your sources, you talk to them, things go as planned, and then this happens, and they don't have control of that either. They don't know what's going to happen. And the amazing thing is is we as reporters are finding out about it at the same time uh, as, as the White mm-hmm. House staff. It's yeah. just an incredible sense of chaos and dysfunction mm-hmm. when these moments happen. I mean, we, of course, have Twitter alerts mm-hmm. for Trump, and, and lately he's been manic with the mm-hmm. retweets about impeachment and Pelosi and all that. Right. Uh, but, you know, we just, we react to cover it, and we try to figure out, like, what the hell is that? What is going on here? What motivated it? Why did he do it? Usually it's easy to figure out because you just play back the tape of Fox and Friends Mm -hmm. and see what somebody said earlier that morning. But a lot of times it's more complex and, you know, the the, the tweets are never fully transparent. So Mm -hmm. you see what he's saying and it's clearly in his voice, uh, oftentimes with a lot of typos and grammatical errors, by the way. Uh, But but there's more to the story and there's more uh, reporting that we have to do to find out what really motivated him. seems to be his alter ego in that, right? Correct. He is the alter ego on the tweets, but I think the ones in the morning are oftentimes just from Trump himself uh, on the phone. And that's actually where a lot of the spelling errors come through. You know, the guy who calls himself a very very stable genius has a lot of issues between there and there and there and, yeah, yeah. and were and w- with <laughs> and council and council and, grammar yeah. is a bitch you know spelling's a bitch so when you have that what happens now to the president where do you see it going if you were going to be writing this now where are we going to go from here? It's like it's, or is it just this endless reality show that never ends? It's hard to imagine it, but I, I, I do think that our foreshadowing, um, based on the trajectory that we learned in the book and 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 traced, is just going to be more emboldened. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the State of the Union. He read this speech that was carefully crafted. Reality TV show, lots of little surprises, yeah. some a little goodie for everybody to show that he's an inclusive president. But when he got off script today, the State of the Union he really wanted to give was, okay. I'm coming for you, every single one of you, that all you Democrats who tried to hem me in to impeach me, the one Republican who voted to convict, mm-hmm. um, I'm going to get you. Right. So and you think that's what he wanted to it, say? And, bold, and, and so I just think more, more bold, dramatic— challenges to what we view as the norms, the pillars of our democracy. He's going to question. And sometimes it's okay to question some of these things. Yes, like, absolutely. Like the war in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. I understand why he questions that. Mm-hmm. But it's more worrisome when he starts questioning. Um, or the vindictiveness rules yes, versus and, and why the, are we doing it this and way. And the independence of it, our three branches of government. Right. They shouldn't all be in lockstep supporting a potentially solipsistic president. Right. And so where do you think it's going? You know, I think Carol's. I, I agree with Carol about the president becoming more. Were and more you at that event this morning? No, but followed it uh, yeah. from the train, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and it was remarkable because it wasn't just the, the grievances and the enemies, but the language he used. He called people evil. Mm-hmm. He suggested that uh, faithful people don't really pray and, and don't have faith. Mm-hmm. He, quest- he he reenacted, by the way, the text messages between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page mm-hmm. from the East Room of the White House, which is. 
uh, one of the most sacred uh, presidential venues in our history. Uh, I think he's going to be unbound and unshackled and do whatever he pleases and face no consequences It's interesting you guys use the word like unbound, unshackled, more (laughs) emboldened. You think he's pretty much been unshackled the whole time? The whole time. The whole time. Like, it's just slightly more crazy and less people in his way. I think it's just not— Well, there's less resistance internally to the crazy. He has people around him who don't question this. I've worked for a crazy person. I worked for John McLaughlin many years ago. Remember him? Crazy. He's dead now. I'm good. Like, I don't know what else to say, but he was a terrible—he had very similar narcissistic personality disorder, doing crazy things to people, ultimately a sexual harasser, all kinds of stuff. And it was really interesting to watch because I was not a Republican. I just happened to be there. Just was, I was 22 years old. And so I didn't have a—you know, I didn't want to become successful in Republican politics later, and the people that there did because he had quite a lot of purview. And what was interesting is how much they put up with— at the time, I was fascinated by it. And I would talk back to him and say, no, no, this is not going to happen, even at 22. And what was really interesting is that there was no one to stop them, and they were always like this. And they just became more so as they became more successful, I guess, at it. And so I think this is exactly what he's like and not any different. It may be slightly crazier, possibly some mental degeneration going on or exhaustion of office. I don't know. Um, But what happens then? How do you cover this then and not say this guy is stone cold crazy or something like that? Well, we can't diagnose him. I mean, we're we're not experts on mental health and psychological fitness, but we can watch uh, how he's stressing these institutions and how Mm -hmm. he's testing them. And when he first came into office, there was a feeling that, okay, the legislative branch will hold him accountable. Mm -hmm. And, okay, the Democrats won the House in 2018, so suddenly that guardrail is in place. Well, that's gone, clearly. Mm -hmm. There was a sense that the Justice Department would be independent from the White House, would uh, investigate these things properly. That seems to be gone under Mm -hmm. this Attorney General Bill Barr, who's very much following Trump's orders and trying to protect him politically. And there aren't a lot of institutions that are standing. The judiciary is one, Mm -hmm. uh, clearly, and the courts have blocked a number of things uh, that are considered illegal that the president and his administration have tried to do. The free press is bringing a lot of this to light and serving a critical function uh, at the moment. But we've watched over three years these institutions start to erode. Another five years, I don't know what it's going to look like. Uh, but our role in all of it is to just chronicle it and, mm-hmm. and question it and, and bring it to light as best we can and as quickly as we well, can. Tell me how it's changed being a reporter because, like, you're all on Twitter. You're, I've always said what I thought. Like, that one's, that, you know, that one's corrupt. This one's, like, people like cover <laughs> in tech. Like, the Yahoo CEO is terrible. The Uber guy is, like, a sociopath. Whatever. I Like, I, like when you once you do reporting, you can sort of make that. I'm so part of a change in reporting where we actually tell people what we actually think. How does that change as political reporters? Because there is this sort of Washington political reporter who has been the typical one, like you all, who just work, just here to cover the news, ma'am. And then there's this whole new class of political reporters who are just gloves off. Like, and, and it's a really, and then there's all these pundits running around. Where was that going, the political class? Because it used to be much more viewpoint. Yeah. I, I don't like the blurriness of it at all. Yeah. I, I, I'm like, I understand where you want to say, I'm calling this what mm-hmm. I want to call it, mm-hmm. but. I feel really strongly that the old school way it should be the new school way about right. reporting. We tell you the facts, you make the decisions. The same is with the book. Mm-hmm. You know, we do some analysis and we we have some through lines and themes that we see, but they're based on factual, right? That you did the reporting. I don't reporting. say not do the reporting. I don't right, like right, pundits. Right, right, right. But. But, for example, you know, either call yourself an opinion person or call yourself a reporter. Mm -hmm. There shouldn't be a lot of middle ground. Mm -hmm. We don't need to sexify our reporting to get people to see it and to know what's going on. To make their own conclusions. You know, one thing we're asked a lot about is, like, why do you call uh, the president a liar? We were asked about this the other night, and Mm -hmm. I I feel, as does Phil, we're going to use the word lie really Mm -hmm. Carefully and that was sparing. a big debate at the Washington Post. It was, and I got in a big argument with someone there, a high-ranking person. When he was lying, I'm like, "It's a lie." Well, we're going to say he fabricates, and I was like, "It's a lie." Like, why not just use the word? And he said, "It's a loaded word." I'm like, "It's not a loaded word." I it's- think we can say lie mm-hmm. when we know right. that it's intentional. So, for example, we didn't know in real time that he was actively lying. He mm-hmm. knew in the Trump Tower. Uh, Don Jr. moment. Now we know he intentionally lied. Mm -hmm. He was warned that information was inaccurate, and he spun it. But we just need to be careful about that. And I I think we should stay on our lines. Mm -hmm. Does that make it so someone like that wins? Because those people win when you you have those standards. It's a really interesting problem um, when, in fact, you know better, you know, 
I, I don't I think just showing people is what we need to do. I, I actually, in terms of winning or losing, we don't think about yeah. reporting that way. But I will say one thing I worry about is how often we are chasing the shiny ball that right. he tosses up in the air each Good day. Good distraction, distraction. Right, and we we should be digging deeper than just his tweets. We, Of course, it's our duty to cover what he's saying. He's the president of the United mm-hmm. States, but there's a lot more going on. What do you think, though? Because he, the shiny ball thing is really a problem, and he's great at it. It's every day. It's a new thing that you have to like, and you've forgotten the yeah. past six things. It's a huge problem and challenge in our reporting, and it's been this way, by the way, from the very beginning right. of this campaign. And what we've had to do at the Post is actually double the team of people covering the president because we feel like we can't ignore— So how many people do you have covering the president right now? We have uh, seven full-time White House reporters, and we have— And on top of that, we have a breaking news team of three reporters who mostly write about and then the president's reporters. things early in the morning or late at night when he's tweeting things. And then the whole investigative team, which is another uh, component. But, you know, we try to do it all. We've, we've decided at the Post, and the Times has made the same decision, too, mm-hmm. that we can't ignore when the president says something outlandish or attacks somebody or does something of news value. He's the president of the United States. What he says on Twitter is a statement on our of, from our country, uh, from the leader of our country, and should be covered. Covered, uh, but we also can't let that get in the way of, of real digging and reporting. And mm-hmm. so there's a, a assessment of priorities every day in the newsroom, and a lot of the reporters covering the president are, are assigned to basically ignore the, the shiny balls in order to mm-hmm. focus on the deeper reporting and the enterprise. Do you ever stories. get pulled into that world of Twitter, though? I mean, look, you just had a controversy at the Post with Felicia yeah. so- is Somez mm-hmm. um, around Somez around uh, Kobe Bryant. This was she doesn't cover Kobe Bryant, and, and just all she did was tweet a. Uh, a story about his history, which is, and you know, Gail King is getting killed today for just asking a question about his history, saying it's inappropriate right now mm-hmm. to do so. It's nobody's business to decide what's appropriate when it is. I can see why people's feelings would be hurt, but it, you know, it's it's a pressure on reporters when you have a president who's using these tools and beautifully mm-hmm. and brazenly to be covering it and not being able to uh, to clap back. Well, there's no reason for us to clap back. And I would, mm-hmm. on that particular controversy, I would just say that it's incredibly um, important that everybody who mm-hmm. works at the Washington Post or for any media organization, mm-hmm. that their tweeting and social media um, presence honors and respects and is true to the mission of what we do every day, mm-hmm. which is report without fear or favor. Now, you know, people have different opinions about when we tweet about someone who just died who's viewed in a lionized way. But I think it must be incredibly difficult for, for example, Marty Barron, the the post editor, executive editor, to feel responsible for the tweets and uh, Instagrams and Facebook posts of 850 professionals. Really tricky situation. And honestly, in this um, chasm in our country, which is almost nearing civil war proportions, one side thinks... Oh, there's the evidence that that person, that reporter is is a liberal, yeah. or oh, there's the evidence that that reporter's in the tank for you know the Trumps. Um, we just have to be so careful, so priestly, and mm-hmm. it's hard priestly. to do. Yeah. It's hard to do. Yeah. What about you? I, I agree with what Carol just said, and and you know we have. Uh, we're fortunate to have a big platform on Twitter to share our reporting and our news and our information. And, you know, that that brings its own pressures, too. Like, I, I'm very careful about what I tweet about expressing opinions in, in the heat of the moment when mm-hmm. Trump does something. And I always lean towards sharing fact and sharing um, analysis that gives followers something that they wouldn't get otherwise without – sort of letting it all out there or without saying something personal. Because we're speaking on behalf of the Washington Post. People follow us because we're Washington Post reporters, not because, like, I'm a super handsome, cool guy. Right, right. Well, you probably wouldn't have to go out. (laughs) But you are. You are. You you must have to go out to the woods and start screaming. That's, you know what I mean? Like, "Ah." Um, Okay, last question for both of you because I know you got to go. Prediction. Besides embolden, and please don't use the word because he's— Stone cold, we will crazy. Never use for that years. Word again. Okay, no, but you know what I mean. I love those. Like, no, he, now he'll really take the gloves off. I'm like, there's been no gloves. There's been no gloves. Like, what gloves are you talking about? It continues to be just louder jazz hands. But w- w- what is the prediction for this election coming? 
Oh, boy. By the way, in case you're interested, that's my little insight, jazz hands. If you understand jazz, jazz hands, hands, you understand Donald Trump, having watched all The Apprentices. You know, one thing Phil and I feel about predicting is that it's a bad idea, but we will say So this often, election, coming this up. This election, predicting what will happen. Debacle. You know, it's not a very good day or week or month or year for Democrats yeah. um, and why Iowa didn't help. But when you look at Donald Trump, Look at the way he electrifies his his base. Yeah, Look at the mess. way he can get them riled up, excited, chanting whatever words he's chanting, whether they're factual or not. And you don't really feel the same kind of thing on the Democratic side. So they're too well behaved. And he's an he's an incumbent, so he already mm-hmm. has a huge advantage with that electricity he's got. Mm-hmm. That's the genius. That's the that's the special sauce. It, it's going to be hard to beat. You know, I don't know how this will turn. He certainly is beatable. He's a historically unpopular president. And yet talking to Democrats, top people in the party the last few days, there is real anxiety and concern uh, that he is is in a very strong political position right now coming mm-hmm. out of impeachment. And his approval rating is up and he's going to be difficult for the Democrats to beat. But they can do it. And they mm-hmm. have enthusiasm because there are so many people in this country, especially young, especially brown, mm-hmm. especially women, who are repulsed by this president and, mm-hmm. and want this period in our history to be over. Are you going to keep covering if he wins? Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't think we can ever not cover Donald Trump in some capacity. <laughs> committed he's, to. He's a part of our lives. Yeah. So you're going to, you would keep covering him if he wins? Probably. What if he doesn't win? What's going? What's that next day like besides the tweet? It's a huge change, but he's not going to go away, right? He's mm-hmm. not going to be the president that goes up in Marine One off to his ranch and we never hear from him for another Does year until his memoir comes up. He's yeah. going to – he might be acting as a shadow president out of Trump Tower or Mar-a-Lago right. where he's now, he's now the official resident of Florida. Yeah. So I don't know, but he's going to be in our lives until, until he's no longer in our lives. Okay. What about you? To be continued. I don't know. So much material. So I mean, many people ask us, are we going to write another book? And I think I'm just going to say, we'll see. Yeah. Oh, you got to. Come on. Come on. You got such good stuff. I mean, really, there have been so many books, but this one was full of juicy details. Quite good digger. Thank You're a you. good digger. Thank you, Karen. Um, thank you so much for being here. This is an amazing book. It's called A Very Stable Genius. It's by Carol uh, Lennig and Phil Rucker from The Washington Post. Stone Cold Losers Both. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. You can follow me on Twitter at Kara Swisher. My executive producer, Eric Anderson, is Erica America. My producer, Eric Johnson, is at Hey Hey ESJ. Carol, pe- where can people find you online? Carol Lennig. Carol Lennig. That's on, on Twitter. What about you? Uh, at Philip Rucker. That's one L in Philip. All right. And then A Very Stable Genius. You can get it stores anywhere, including Amazon. Um, if you like this episode, <laughs> but buy it at a regular bookstore, people. Anyway, sorry. That's my plug for regular bookstores. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you shared it with a friend. And make sure to check out our other podcasts, Pivot, Reset, Recode Media, and Land of the Giants. Just search for them in your podcasting app of choice or tap the link in the show notes. Thank you also to our editor, Joel Robbie. Thank you for listening to this episode of Recode Decode. I'll be back here on Wednesday. Tune in then. HBO Max brings all of HBO to your fingertips, plus an epic list of new Max originals. Whether you're into animation, classic movies, or binge-worthy series, HBO Max's suggested collections are curated by real humans, not robots, so you find the right thing to watch every time. With thousands of options for you and the family to choose from, it's the streaming platform of your dreams. HBO Max, where HBO needs so much more. Start streaming now at hbomax.com. Listener.